0: Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us
1: live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. Claudia Rankin says that every conversation about race doesn't need to be about racism. And she's revelatory for me as a white American about pain points that are woven into the fabric of the American everyday. She models how it's possible to bring this out into the open not in order to fight, but in order to draw closer. She shows how we can all do this, hour by hour, encounter by encounter, in ordinary times and spaces.
0: And I spend a lot of time thinking about... How can I say this so that we can stay in this car together, and yet explore the things that I want to explore with you? I just think that line. How can how can I say this so we can stay? How can I say (laughs) this so we can stay in this this car car together? together. (laughs) It's like it should be
1: a national motto for us. (laughs) I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Claudia Rankin's book, Citizen and American Lyric, was a New York Times bestseller and won many awards. She teaches at Yale and is also the founder of the Racial Imaginary Institute. And she's published several collections of poetry and also plays. She joined me at the K Playhouse at Hunter College in New York City. We were there as part of the 2018 Work It Women's Podcast Festival. Hello, New York City. Just before I start, I want to, well, first I just want to say how fabulous it is to be here. And I've wanted to interview Claudia forever, and I've just kind of been waiting for the right moment, and this was it, and here we all are together for it. Um, And I want to thank Melissa LaCase and WNYC, and especially the great people at WNYC Studios. Um, So you were born in Jamaica and came to the U.S. when you were seven, is that right? That's correct, Okay. And somewhere when you were describing the that time of your birth, you, you put it in context this way, that 11 days after you were born on September fifteenth, 1963, four black girls were killed in the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham. Um, so you were still in Jamaica those first seven years of your life, and I wonder... Um, did you know that, circum- you know, that? Did you have that context or was that sequence something that you learned later when you were in the States? I didn't know.
0: I didn't know. Um, I can't even say if my parents knew. But what they did know is that that, that wasn't a surprise. Mm-hmm. So that when we came to the United States, my mother said, um, she had two things. Two things that she believed, in any case. One was that public school was awful, and and two, and she did say this to me: "You cannot trust white people." Those were her two. You know, as a Jamaican woman coming to the United States in the 1960s, when the American um, government opened up immigration because of um, a need for healthcare workers, yeah. so that's. Brought a kind of flood
1: from the Caribbean, yeah. and previously and, most immigrants had been white Europeans. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: exactly. So, um, so, so, whether or not she knew exactly that, she knew it, mm-hmm. and she communicated it.
1: Um, was Was there a religious background to your childhood? My
0: mother's religious in any way you can be religious. <laughs> <laughs> She goes to church, she reads the Bible, she quotes the Bible, she invokes the Bible. (laughs) So um, we grew up um, with a real sense of her going to church. Mm -hmm. And I didn't always go because I didn't want my hair straightened. (laughs) And if I wouldn't straighten my hair, she wasn't going to take me. So of course, what? (laughs) So there was no straightening of the hair.
1: That was true. One of the main things I remember about going to church growing up was dressing up for Easter. Exactly. Which is really not what we're supposed to be remembering. Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) Well, that's, you know, it became a kind of um, a moment to be public Mm. in all your beauty, Mm -hmm. whatever your sense of that is.
1: Yeah. You published Citizen, was 2014? Right? It's funny. I thought it was more recent. And to your point, 2014 feels like about 25 years ago. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, feels, it feels like a different world, although in my mind, one of the characteristics of the world of 2014 as opposed to now is that it was easier to pretend that we had made more progress than we have, for some of us. To for pretend. some of us. Not, right? So like, no, because so there were realities, yeah. and there were realities, and it was possible. Mm-hmm. To not know, or to 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 not say that you could see that, mm-hmm. but it seems to me that one thing you were doing in Citizen, so like, you know, you said your mother your your mother would always speak of American blacks and American whites. She had this clarity that there were different realities and experiences, and that you were kind of mm, laying out, documenting, giving voice to like, the cumulative imprint of those distinct realities and experiences. And it was in ordinary time, in the subway, outside your therapist's office, on an airplane, at lunch at a college you're speaking at, in your child's school, in a real estate showing, like on and on and on. You know, you write about this exhaustion of constantly not just having the experience, but asking yourself, like, did he say that? Did I hear that? Did she mean that? Is this racism or not?
0: I think in the years coming up to the publication of Citizen, I was interested in this idea that um, we had entered a new time. And yet I was seeing... The ways that racism we know about structural racism, we understand you know what how it goes top down institutionally structurally, but when you understand that it's coming from your friends, mm-hmm. you know your so-called friends, and it's coming from your colleagues and it's so unmarked. So the 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 writing of Citizen was really a project in like, how do you get language to mark the unmarked? Mm-hmm. Because clearly, I mean, I, I believe these people are my friends. I mean, I spend a lot of time with them. I you know, and and in good faith, I am I'm working with my colleagues or. I'm trusting, you know, every time you drive your car, you're trusting everybody around you. And yet, I was still feeling assaulted and diminished mm-hmm. and insulted. And, you know, you say um, you say that anger is how pain shows itself in public.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, and angry. You know, so I... I, I really wanted to see how, you, how do you get language to show that. And the examples in Citizens aren't, some of them are mine, but they're not, most, for the most part, they're not mine intentionally because I didn't want people to say, you know, you should get new friends. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> or you should, you should make better choices with who you hang out with. And so I, I called... Um, other friends um, who are, for the most part, African-American, and said, can you tell me something, some ordinary thing that you were doing? And then somebody in your life said or did something to make you realize in their eyes you are no one. And so many of those came. And they wouldn't come right away. People would say, oh, I don't know, I can't really think of anything. And then they would call back. And and then the stories would pour out mm-hmm. to the point. I, I remember I, I asked a friend who's a lawyer in Los Angeles, and he says, you know, he's this guy who is like, he's a definition of cool. You know, like you, he's the one if all the kids are in the house together, and his family's there, and our family, and Andre. And, you know, some fire starts, and the rest of us are like, oh, my God. He's like, put it out. You know, he's that guy. <laughs> he's just like, put it out. And, and when he came over, I said, I'll make you dinner. You come over, and you tell me everything that's ever happened to you. And... <laughs> And that's what happened. And, and he came over, and he turned into a different person. He cried at our dining room table. His wife, who's white, had never heard any of these stories. And she completely changed after that dinner. So it, it was a, a sobering um, exercise in terms of the gathering of those mm-hmm. pieces and Citizen.
1: I wonder, um, let's see, this one... Because I think we're talking kind of in the abstract if people haven't read the book. Um, Here, just this one, page 7, which is also kind of the effect it has on you.
0: Certain moments send adrenaline to the heart, dry out the tongue, and clog the lungs. Like thunder, they drown you in sound. No, like lightning, they strike you across the larynx. Cough. After it happened, I was at a loss for words. Haven't you said this yourself? Haven't you said this to a close friend who early in your friendship, when distracted, would call you by the name of her black housekeeper? You assumed you too were the only black people in her life. Eventually, she stopped doing this, though she never acknowledged her slippage. And you never called her on it. Why not? And yet, you don't forget. If this were a domestic tragedy, and it might as well be, this would be your fatal flaw, your memory, vessel of your feelings. Do you feel hurt because it's the all black people look the same moment, or because you're being confused with another after being so close to this other? Thank you. That last line, I have to say, was the hardest line to write in the book, because the original version of that piece was something like, I was, try- I was trying too hard to come up with the language of- in my head. So I was thinking, is it because she's a servant? And I would go on hikes and think, okay, come on. What, what is it? What is it? And then I realized it really is about intimacy.
1: Yeah.
0: You know, you, you really, when it comes down to it, the space between us gets violated okay. in these moments.
1: And you get othered. Right. Where you don't expect to be othered. Where you
0: don't expect to be othered.
1: Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today with poet, essayist and playwright Claudia Rankin. In our project, when we're talking about race, mm-hmm. always being attentive to wanting, to soften the space, for people to hear. Mm-hmm. You know, we won't let like like language of white privilege or white supremacy, you can talk about it without using the words. Mm-hmm. And 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 that's I think is important because some of these words, like the word racist, trigger all these reactions in people and you know, shut their imaginations down and get them mm-hmm. and so they stop listening. Mm-hmm. I mean, and the language of white supremacy now is so loaded in all kinds of other ways, right? And now we think of very real force energies and people who are hate-mongers, vigilantes. But I feel like what you also give voice to and put words around is kind of, I don't know if this is the right language, but like the soft underbelly of white supremacy that is really about all of us, our culture, that's in... Well, just in this fact that, I'm, as you point this out, when white Americans don't identify as white Americans. <laughs> they just identify as Americans. It's You mentioned like Hannah Arendt and the banality of evil, that notion. And I think we all, a lot of us who are educated know that, but I don't think white Americans ever apply that image to how we live and this, what you, because what you're describing Uh, going through your days is experiencing the banality of evil. And it is white supremacy as it is woven into the fabric Mm -hmm. of everyday life.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, Bernie Sanders, who said um,
0: the fact that in uh, Florida and Georgia, that white Americans couldn't get themselves to vote. They're not racist. They just couldn't get themselves to vote for a black person. Now, (laughs) Now, if that is not the definition of racism, yeah. I don't know what is. Yeah. And Bernie Sanders puts himself, was presented as the hope of America, right? And this person doesn't understand what racism is. Yeah. And that's who, you know, so I, I think we need to allow the conversation to happen. And I'm really interested in your um, conversations because of that, and trying to think about ways to start conversations. But I also think that we need to grow up in terms of what the realities are. Because as long as we allow the kind of euphemisms
1: yeah.
0: to stand, you know, I was had a dinner party. Somebody said, um, "My my son has been um, redeployed. I'm really nervous. I you know I believe I, I think the military is important, but." I'm just, you know, full of anxiety. Yeah. And a woman who is a former judge said, well, I know what you mean. My my son um, just moved to Brooklyn. <laughs> and I'm sitting next to him, I'm like, Brooklyn. And, <laughs> and she said, yeah, I, you know, I really worry about him. I worry about his, whether or not he's going to live. And I'm like, oh, so Brooklyn is... And I said, I, have you been to Brooklyn lately? You know, like, <laughs> <laughs> but, but that, I mean, that's, that's Brooklyn as equal to black people, as equal to racism. That's just it. And this woman, had Hillary won, would have been in the government now, and we would have thought that's better than what we have, and it would be better than what we have.
1: But she's still racist. Yeah. Yeah. You wrote a play coming out of The White Card Mm
0: -hmm.
1: as you were kind of, I think, on the road with Citizen and out of the conversations that emerged from that. And now you said you're writing about how to have these conversations. Mm -hmm. It seemed to me maybe this was a spark. And you um, describe being in a kind of this cathartic moment where you're speaking, reading, and a man stands up and says, what can I do for you? How can I help you? Uh, I'm trying to muster in himself the appropriate response to what you were showing. Mm-hmm. And you said, I think the question you should be asking is what you can do for you. Right. The play, which I, w- I watched a video of it, which was important. And... Uh, you know, you said that you wrote this because you 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 then were having this experience, and you just decided you kind of needed to act it out, like to role play it, make it three dimensional. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you want to kind of set the scene?
0: It's a play about the art world and um, very wealthy art collectors who are committed to social justice are um, interesting. In acquiring a series of works by an African American artist, and um, the play begins at a dinner party where they are meeting her for the first time, and the dinner party goes off track in in ways that um, are both subtle and not subtle.
1: And it, like the dinner party, it feels like caricature, and I wanted to think. I wanted to feel like it was caricature, and it's, but it's actually way too close to how too many conversations go. go from her leaving the room, and somebody saying, "I I'm, I'm thinking she'd be good for the board. It will definitely solve the diversity issue." Um, but you know, there are these moments where Alex, the Columbia student, says, "I'm angry at my father for incarcerating your people. He builds private prisons," and she says, "Why not just say people?" I. I've had this experience uh, just this week—two t- plays in two days. Watching yours, and then seeing an American Son mm-hmm. that just play Carrie Washington mm-hmm. is doing. Have you seen it? Not yet. And I, I talked to her a little bit after after the play. Cause there's something about that one in yours that—and um, it was a very mixed, racially mixed audience. Um, and there were a lot of things that people took as laugh lines and i was frankly i wasn't sure the whole time what mm-hmm, I, mm-hmm. and and i think p- different people were laughing at different things mm-hmm. and it was a, a black mother a white father a black policeman mm-hmm. a white policeman yeah, but one of the things i said to her is like cuz this this black mother's son is has been is did not come home and there's a an accident report mm-hmm. and i said you know is it how does that feel you know is that offensive to you to have to it's like when people laugh and I feel like you and your play also there's people laugh and it's uncomfortable. And she said as a producer, she said people can't handle this intensity. You can't just ask them to sit there for an hour and a half. Mm-hmm. I feel that same creative work and tension in your work. But it just, it, I don't know, I came out of it feeling like realizing this is a lot to ask of people to watch this but it's not too much to ask of us.
0: It's not too much. It's kind of like you said, we need to grow up. Yeah. I, um, I, one of the things I like about Robin DiAngelo's White Fragility book is that she introduces very clear terms about certain things that are I, I find very useful. And one of them is white stamina.
1: White what? Stamina?
0: Stamina <laughs> for, for racial content.
1: Okay.
0: That, that white people have to build up a stamina to be able to... To hold racial stamina. Yeah. You know, like to to, to be able to I talk. think
1: it's a but I think it's a useful Yeah, it's a useful you, term. Some right?
0: words, yeah. Yeah. And um, so I think the more one goes to see plays like these and read books like these and listen, it will not seem so foreign or hot or self incriminating. You know, if, if one understands, oh, this is the society we grew up in. Yeah. And if one is honest about what those secret thoughts are or what got said at, at, inside what was a private space with white people or what gets said when people of color come in. If you begin to just be honest about those things, mm-hmm. then when you see it, it won't be like, oh, my God, oh, my God. Oh my God. You know, because the reviews for the white card was like, Claudia Rankin is giving. She just turned those white people into horrible characters. Really? <laughs> some of them. It was, it was um, she didn't give them any good lines. You know, all <laughs> kinds of things were said like that. And, uh, you know, it's uh, the. I just called up some artists and said, what kinds of things get said to you? And they told me. I mean, not that they needed to. Yeah. (laughs) I have been living this life, too. But, um, yeah. I mean, it's... it's, it's, I think the one thing I have learned in the last... 10 years, let's say. Well, you know, I had breast cancer, and I think that really Mm -hmm. was a turning point. And you realize, oh, you just... You could just die any time. So you might as well just... Speak your peace before it's rest in peace, you know?
1: After a short break, more with Claudia Rankin. You can always listen again and hear the unedited version of every conversation I have on the OnBeing podcast feed. Now with special occasional bite-sized extras wherever podcasts are found. On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation.
0: The Templeton Foundation harnesses the power of the sciences to explore the deepest and most perplexing questions facing humankind. Learn about cutting-edge research on the science of generosity, gratitude, and purpose at templeton.org forward slash discoveries.
1: I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with poet, essayist, and playwright Claudia Rankine. We're at the K Playhouse at Hunter College in New York City, as part of the 2018 Work It Women's Podcast Festival from WNYC Studios. I interviewed Yula um, Biss mm-hmm. on whiteness, and um you know, she. Her, this is kind of one of the ways she wrote about what you're writing about in in her language. One of the privileges of being white is that you can coast through your experience. You can coast through your life without having to think about what your race means to other people and what your existence in a community means to the people around you. And actually, she quotes you, and I read your words to her from this incredible piece you wrote in the New York Times after the massacre in the church in Charleston, where you said, I asked another friend what it's like being the mother of a black son. The condition of black life is mourning, she said bluntly. For her, mourning lived in real time inside her and her son's reality. At any moment, she might lose her reason for living. Though the white liberal imagination likes to feel temporarily bad about black suffering, there really is no mode of empathy that can replicate the daily strain of knowing that as a black person, you can be killed for simply being black. No hands in your pockets, no playing music, no sudden movements, no driving your car, no walking at night, no walking in the day, no turning onto this street, no entering this building, no standing your ground, no standing here, no standing there, no talking back, no playing with toy guns, no living while black. Um, Eula Biss wrote that she read this essay of yours and then started asking, she said, sitting with this essay in front of me, I asked myself, what the condition of white life might be, and I wondered, is that a useful question in your mind? I think so.
0: I think that um, I'm really appreciative of Eula's work. I, I've I've read it, and um, and I know her. Mm-hmm. I mean, I find her very careful sometimes. Mm-hmm. In in um, you know, because I really I'm really interested in what is going on in white people's heads. When, you know, when, because I know a lot of things are going on in my head, and I know that you are no different from me, mm-hmm. and I know that you're having lots of thoughts and saying three sentences. Mm-hmm. So what are all those thoughts? Mm-hmm. And um, I think Eula is one of those people out there that I'm, I think will be able to say if she's willing to say, what is being circulated? Inside, in terms of one sense of the negotiation, because there is that sense of like everybody has to be so careful. Um,
1: well, right, but I think th- I, there are reasons to feel that yeah, to be to yeah. be nervous. And the, I mean, it's interesting because there aren't that many people, even just given this conversation, there aren't that many people like Eula is saying. Let's talk about whiteness. Mm-hmm, Let's mm-hmm. talk about whiteness. We, I mean, there was actually a moment in that conversation with her where two white people talking about whiteness and we both agreed that it was mortifying and and embarrassing and messy and you know and and part of it is you feel like you surely we were past this right we shouldn't be having to have this conversation at this advanced age and I mean she talked about how and Chris, so don't you?
0: say that hmm? don't say surely we were past
1: Well I mean I think but, that's one reason f- people feel awkward because we're still getting over from this Cathartic five years from no,
0: but but this, but you know,
1: mass know. and cast,
0: incarceration,
1: You know, you know what's I happening. Know.
0: You know, so not surely. I mean, those things were always happening.
1: They were, but I think people who grew up in the sixties and seventies and eighties and nineties were born into a world in which they were told that yes, sure, it wasn't perfect yet, but we were inexorably moving past it. Like that—that's an in- instinct. Then now we're having to unlearn and say, actually, we weren't. We weren't anywhere. We're st- we just made baby steps. Okay. That's what I mean. Okay. okay. You know, she said that she, real- she experienced in her students that they're scared of saying things out loud because they're scared of saying the wrong thing. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I, you know, I just, I have a friend who, um, she and I, she's a white woman, she and I read, read books together. Like, we, you know, we, we read it and then we talk about it. Mm-hmm and their books on whiteness, and um, it's interesting because we made a rule between us that we would say whatever we're thinking, and it's been great. It's mm-hmm. been really interesting it, um, because then we sort of navigate, what is that? And it might be that that kind of exercise needs to happen first with white people, with white people, so that they can do it. But that's ironic, in a way, because that is reinstating segregationists. Um, principles in an effort to be anti-racist. So I'm like...
1: <laughs> yeah, um, and but I think that's... I mean, but, it isn't... You know, it but, is,
0: but it might be necessary, I don't know. I mean, but she and I had that conversation because uh, she said, well, that's a stark way to look at it. And I was like, that's an ironic way to look at it. But I, I, I
1: think, I think,
0: yeah, it, it just has to start happening. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You, so the racial imaginary institute is a project you're working on and I I feel like you are out of that offering up some some tools of language and imagination and action. And it sounds like you're writing about this now too. So I'm just I'm curious about how you're thinking these days about how to open that space wider.
0: Well, that that really is my ambition. Like, how how to have the conversation so that the space can hold discomfort, so that the thing isn't a thing that you have to put over there, so that we can get over ourselves, in a sense. And and I mean all of us, um, people of color, white people, that we have suddenly a moment where we have an investment in a kind of possibility that is beyond our um, negotiation of each other. Mm -hmm. I think the messiness of just saying what it is, when it is, um, if Bernie Sanders could say, okay, those people are racist, and that's why it's difficult for them to vote for a black person, hopefully, the next time they can get a little closer to doing it. They did it some of them for Obama, and then reverted back. Um, so, you know, like just say it, especially people who are in the media, so that
1: people can see it sort of modeled. Yeah, but I think people probably feel like that that probably feels so dangerous. It's only dangerous because you don't do it. Yeah.
0: <laughs> oh. <laughs> I mean. Things get ordinary very fast.
1: I mean, one of the things you say also is that um, that every conversation about race doesn't have to be about racism. Right. And I think that's an important piece of permission mm-hmm. for people. Mm-hmm. Some of what you've written about the Racial Imaginary Institute, I'd, I'd like to kind of draw you out on, um, you know, you, you talk a lot about all the ways it's possible to be white and to not, to feel innocent, you know, and, or make excuses without meaning to make excuses or knowing you're making excuses, um, that these are very strong muscles. But, um, you know, you said, what what a white person should know is this, her whiteness limits her imagination, A deep awareness of this knowledge could indeed expand the limits, not transcend them, but expand them, make more room for the imagination. A good thing. When you're having a conversation among artists, Mm -hmm. but just, I also feel to open, to let the imagination into the room. Say, that's that's also a muscle we get to flex here. Yeah, yeah oh okay yeah well' say I mean, just say so, because I think is yeah. that are you thinking about that now as you are thinking about how to start the conversations? no, I am I am mm-hmm. i you know i i as much
0: as i 'm interested in what is possible i 'm also interested in what is possible for me, mm-hmm. and so, as a writer, as an artist, as a person, and so part of my desire to have the conversation is really. To be able to find my own blind spots mm. and to be able to open, to be curious, mm. to, to go places with a person beyond our sort of predestined positionings. And it happens, you know, it happened. I, I had a great, I was on a plane and there was this white guy and he was nice. And, and he said, you know, he asked me, what kind of music do you like? And I said, I like uh, Night Shift by the Commodores. And he's like, I love Night Shift. <laughs> and so, you know that song? Um, How does it go? Somebody sing. um, I don't think so. On the night shift. (laughs) What you doing now? Anyway, it's a great great song. And so we sang that song. Yeah. Like on the plane, two strangers. (laughs) We sang night shift, even though I can't do it now, but I had him to push me along. And so the words came back. And... um, and he was, you know, he's really, he's the kind of person who, had I met him in my real life, mm-hmm. we probably would be friends. And then he said to me, um, I don't see color. And it was like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, and, but the amazing thing that happened was um, somehow I said to, I don't even know how I did it, but I said to him, mm, uh, that's, that's not such a good thing to say and he said why mm-hmm. and I said because I'm a black woman and you're a white man and I want you to see that I w- if you don't see color you're not seeing me mm-hmm. and if you can't see me you can't see racism and I want you to be able to see those things and he said and this is the moment that I loved," he said to me. "Did I say anything else?" Mm. And I said, "No, that was it."
1: (laughs) And then then we got back on our conversation, just like that. You know, I love that story so much because um, it's also it also points out that you know I think when we start talking about having the conversations, kind of sounds like another extracurricular activity, Mm -hmm. right? And you know, and if these. Old flawed impulses are woven into the everyday, then these new impulses have to be woven into the everyday. Mm-hmm. Right? And these conversations don't have to be hour-long meetings. Right. At the end of which we have made a, you know, pledge together. It's like it can be two right. minutes on the plane right. that's transformative. Exactly. I mean I I
0: we were able to continue talking and singing our songs. <laughs>
1: I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with poet, essayist, and playwright, Claudia Rankin. The language of intimacy came up earlier on, that it is precisely the intimacy that makes it such a painful affront. You mentioned that you had a friend who said to you, I think what you're doing is pushing people away so they can get closer. Like this, is, this is not about pushing people mm-hmm. away. It's about reestablishing or establishing for the first time an intimacy that is meaningful.
0: Yeah, that, well, that is truthful. Mm-hmm. That is, I mean, I feel my friends... It's, I don't think it's easy being my friend. <laughs> um, yeah. But I think the friends who are my friends, I trust with my life mm-hmm. because we have had to consider my life every day. If something is said that means that I drop out or that they drop out, then, then it has to be mended immediately. Or else we're, we're working with a, with a broken thing.
1: Yeah. One thing you um, you mentioned a little while ago that part of your your aspiration with the new conversation is also to see your own blind spots. So you know one thing about one thing that's fun, especially at this point, about my job is that I feel like there's a cumulative conversation that happens between a lot of the people who I talk to. Kind mm-hmm. of, I get to proxy with each other, and another person I was thinking of when I was getting ready for this is a conversation I had with Arlie Hochschild, who is a a Berkeley sociologist who spent five years in Louisiana and wrote in kind of tea party country, like looking at that phenomenon, and the book came out in September 2016, and it felt like it described um, the world we were... What was it called? Um, it's called Strangers in Their Own Land. Mm-hmm. And it's about seeing the world through the eyes of a very different white reality. Mm-hmm. But I said to her, um, I just wonder how you respond to the, to the reality that there are all kinds of people living... You know, people of color have been living in this country feeling like strangers in their own land for a long, long time. And when it's white people um there's a, There's an intensity of attention to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and she basically just said, "Well, you're right, that's right." Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a valid yeah. It's a valid point. I don't know, but you've also said that one thing you've been grappling with is is uh, understanding that or thinking about poor white people mm-hmm, and that's mm-hmm. not not has not so much been in your view. Oh, yeah. No, I definitely. I, you know, I was,
0: I was picked up. I, I had to give a, a graduation speech at a college. And it was way, it was you know, like two hours past the airport. And um, it was one of those colleges up in the Berkshires. And um, the woman who picked me up was this really interesting woman. She, you know, she was a white woman, very working class. And I asked her if she had voted um, for a current president, and she said yes. And, um, and she was very defensive, you know, very like, yes and so what. And, and I said, you know, I'm, I'm just curious, um, why? Was it health care? What, what was it? And she said um, she had Obamacare um but she didn't really believe in health care she didn't believe in doctors because um, when she, her husband went to the doctor they said he would live for a year and he lived for 2 months mm-hmm. and she started crying as she was driving the car and and then i you know we got to talking And then she told me she lived in a double wide, and I had no idea what a double wide was. But I didn't want to ask her what a double wide was because I didn't want her to think I didn't know what a double wide was. (laughs) Not because I, I care about being not knowing, but I wanted to share whatever her... Her situation was, and then I kindly figured it out that it was some kind of trailer park that was double wide, mm-hmm. and then she would, she told me this heartbreaking story that she usually went to visit her sister in Washington D.C. But this year there was a crack in the double wide, and so if she could work, for this is this is the end of the school year, so this is like May. So she's not going to go the summer. So she could work through the summer so the guy could fix the crack in the double wide before the cold came. And I said to her, well, how much do you think it's going to cost? And she said, about $300. And then I spent like, part of the ride thinking, should I just give her the $300 yeah. or what? Should, you know, I didn't do that, but it, it was just, you know, a different reality. And, and then I asked her, um, what did she do when she wasn't driving? And she said, well, I do theater. And apparently there was a church in town and they had asked for actors so she comes and she does theater. So you know, like all of a sudden, this woman became this whole yeah. person who still would probably, um, you know, vote against my mm-hmm. best interests, my life possibilities, and all of that. Mm-hmm. But but was a whole person with with a lot of pain and um, and was making a life the best she knew how and. You know, by the time we, we arrived, she was like, it was great talking to you. I was like, great talking to you. <laughs> and, and and then, yeah. but it, it it was a lot, you know, it was one of those moments where um, I'm often being driven by people who are not me. and And I spend a lot of time thinking about how can I say this so that we can stay in this car together? And yet... Explore the things that I want to explore with you.
1: I think that I just think that line. How can? What did you say? How can I? How can I say this so we can stay? How can I say this so we can stay in in this this car car together? together. It's like it should be a national motto for us. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Something I love. You know James Baldwin's words floating Mm. around the world is another example of this. A couple of. Lines of James Baldwin that you brought to me that I just want to give back to you. Uh, the purpose of art is to lay bare the questions hidden behind the answers. And also, love takes off masks that we fear we cannot live without and know we cannot live within.
0: I have a new one. <laughs> what? What? I have a new Baldwin quote. Oh, okay. It's in the new book. It's um, white people sought to civilize black people before they civilized themselves.
1: Oh. Is that good? I want to ask you to read, just as we finish, this went so quickly, one of the final pages of, of Citizen. And, of course,
0: you want the days to add up to something more than you came in out of the sun and drank the potable water of your developed world. Yes, and because words hang in the air like pollen, the throat closes. You hack away. That time and that time and that time The outside blistered the inside of you. Words outmaneuvered years, had you in a chokehold. Every part roughed up, the eyes dripping. That's the bruise the ice in the heart was meant to ice. To arrive like this every day, for it to be like this. To have so many memories and no other memory than these. For as long as they can be remembered, to remember this. Though a share of all remembering, a measure of all memory, is breath. And to breathe, you have to create a truce, a truce with the patience of a stethoscope.
1: Claudia. Rankin, thank you so much. Yeah, thank, you. thank you. Thank you. Claudia Rankin is the Frederick Eisman Professor of Poetry at Yale University and founder of the Racial Imaginary Institute. She's the author of five collections of poetry, including Citizen, An American Lyric, and Don't Let Me Be Lonely. Her plays include Provenance of Beauty and The White Cart. On being is Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Mariah Helgeson, Maya Tarrell, Marie Sambalay, Aaron Farrell, Lauren Dordal, Tony Liu, Bethany Iverson, Aaron Kalasako, Kristen Lynn,
0: Profit Idowu, Casper Kyle,
1: Angie Thurston,
0: Sue Phillips, Eddie Gonzalez, Lillian Vo, Lucas Johnson, Damon Lee,
1: Suzette Burley, Katie Gordon,
0: Zach Rose, and Siri Grassley.
1: Special thanks this week to Melissa LaCase, Alicia Allen, Ed Haber, Emily Skillings, and all the great people at WNYC Studios and the Work It Podcast Festival. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice you hear singing our final credits in each show is hip-hop artist Lizzo. On Being was created at American Public Media. Our funding partners include... The George Family Foundation, in support of the Civil Conversations Project. The Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, working to create a future where universal spiritual values form the foundation of how we care for our common home. Humanity United, advancing human dignity at home and around the world. Find out more at HumanityUnited.org. Part of the Omidyar Group, the Henry Luce Foundation in support of Public Theology Reimagined, the Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives, and the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education.
0: On being is distributed by PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and is a Krista Tippett Public Production.